I read a disturbing statistic this past week. may not shock you much, but to a preacher it was actually very disturbing. Here it is. Most of you are fully aware of the fact that every 10 years in the United States of America, we take a census. Send them out by mail. You fill it out, mail it back. If you don't mail it back, there are people that come to your door and collect it. Well, we use the census, the government does, to figure out all kinds of different things about what's happening in the country. And then they publish the findings. In 2009, they published these disturbing findings. In 1957, a little bit of background for you. In 1957, during the census that was tallied in those days, there were 2.7% of Americans that said that they had no church affiliation whatsoever, no religious affiliation whatsoever. By 2009, that number had swollen to 16% of people in the United States of America with no religious affiliation whatsoever. Even more disturbing than that is the fact that in 1990, when the last census had been tallied, they had more than doubled. So in the 20 years from 1990 to 2009, things had doubled in no religious affiliation. That is quite disturbing. So that we put it in the right perspective for you, this maybe will cause your light bulb to go off a little bit and make you think, oh, wow, that's a big deal. That is more, 16%, is more than all Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Lutherans combined. Four mainline denominations of everybody that identified themselves with one of those denominations, 16% of people that chose no religious affiliation is greater than all four of those combined. In Europe, the continent of Europe, the number goes well beyond that. In fact, last year at the School of Missions, we had a missionary from Europe who used some mind-boggling statistics. And if I remember right, he said that only 4% of the continent of Europe would put a little check mark next to any religious affiliation. 96% have no belief whatsoever. Now, a lot of folks will find themselves in a position where they will choose no religious affiliation because of great tragedies that have happened in their life. Great trauma that has happened in their life. That's evident even in these statistics. Because of those 16%, there were a group of researchers that wanted to follow up with them. They discovered this. A lot of those people, though they have no religious affiliation, no church affiliation whatsoever, they still say they believe in God. They just have no use for Him. And they believe that He has no use for us. God is no good. And therefore, they don't want Him in their lives. Of those 16%, the bulk of them would say, yes, there is a God, but I have no use for him. He is no good. He does no good. Isn't that disturbing? It really is. And again, a lot of that happens because tragedy has touched their lives in very personal ways. They may have believed in God, had strong affiliation with him and strong church affiliation, and then some great injustice would take place And they would say, well, if there really is a God, how could this happen? And it doesn't take very long before they begin to drift away from any relationship that they had with God at all. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, will come right up against this issue. We've been studying this book for a a number of weeks. We're going to keep going for a while. I encourage you to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And as you get there, I want you to realize this. It is not unbelief that causes a problem with evil in the world. It is faith. Now listen to that. 
It is not unbelief that causes a problem of evil in the world. It is faith. If a person has no faith at all and they have no belief and they are not rooted or grounded in the things of God and they experience evil, it really isn't that big of a deal. Because for those who do not believe in God and have no faith, it's very easy for them to blame themselves or to blame another person. But for somebody who does have faith, for somebody that does believe in God, when they experience evil, whether they see it or it touches them, all of a sudden the problem gets much greater because they blame God. They find themselves saying, how could God let this happen? How could this take place in my life? How could that happen in the life of a believer? How could a God that supposedly loves us allow these things to take place? You've probably heard things along those lines before. Maybe you've even wondered them yourself. Solomon lays a little bit of foundation for that in chapter 7 as he wraps that up. Listen to this, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. As he comes face to face with this idea of evil in the world, and he has to wrestle his way through it, that's exactly what Solomon would say. God made man upright, but then man started chasing all kinds of different schemes. Now that's actually great understanding of a doctrine called free will. God gave us free will. That's what allows us to choose him. The Lord placed it deep within us, and he did it that we might choose to worship him. That's the whole idea of free will. But there is a flip side to it. The flip side comes at great risk to God. If he says, I'm going to give you free will that you might choose to worship me and live in relationship with me, I will do it at great risk that you might not, that you might choose something else. Free will says, I want to be obedient to the Lord. I want to live a righteous life. I want to do the things that are right in the eyes of God. But flip the coin over, I have the ability to choose to do the exact opposite. And a lot of people do. Now, here's what I want you to know about free will. If you have ever wrestled with this issue and struggled with the issue of free will, why God allows evil to happen in the world, I want you to hear this. And I want to make sure it registers with you. God will never, ever take it away from you. He does not give us free will that we might choose him. And when we do choose him, God takes free will away so that we stay there. God doesn't do that. Free will remains. Yours and those around you all have their ability to choose. Now, the truth of the Bible is this. This is exactly what Solomon is saying. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. And oftentimes, that search is a direct result of seeing some sort of injustice, whether they passively watch it or it touches them personally, and it'll take us looking all kinds of different ways. That's where Solomon goes in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Start with me in verse 1. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. Though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him, since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain it. 
so no one has power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. Majority of scholars would say that Solomon writes chapter 8 after watching a lot of different things and maybe even finding himself in conversation with some people. Like these eight verses, it is entirely possible that Solomon was talking to a guy that signed himself up to work for somebody, in this case a king, and that king started to do things that the man didn't agree with. So he wanted to know, how do I get out of this? This isn't right. This is a wicked man that I have gone to work for. It just happens that he's a king. So we could look at this and say that it only has a national application for us. What are we supposed to do with people in positions of government that seem to be doing evil or seem to be wicked? But there's a much more personal application of it. What do we do when we choose to enter into a relationship with somebody, a work relationship? They're in a position of authority over us. They're doing things that we don't necessarily agree with, and it seems unjust. They're even profiting from some of those things. So how are we supposed to handle ourselves? Well, Solomon actually tells us. But let's start with what we know about this guy that he is talking to, this person that's gone into the employment, employment, there we go, of the king. First thing is this. He was a wise man, and it was evident on his face. Listen to verse 1. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. You ever looked into the eyes of somebody and just known, instantly known that they were wise? Have you ever looked at the countenance of somebody's face and known that they were a very wise individual? You probably have. Most of us have. Have you ever looked into the countenance of somebody, into their eyes or into their face and recognized that they're a very sad person? You ever looked into somebody's face and known instantly that they're a very happy, joy-filled person? The face communicates a great deal about what's going on in our lives. We need to pay attention to it. In this guy's situation, it communicated wisdom. He had some things going for him. He had figured some things out. I want to set that aside for just a second and talk to the young parents that are with us today. If you're raising kids and you have small children at home... Discipline is always one of those struggles that you have. This is kind of an aside to what we're talking about. Tina and I accidentally fell upon an idea in discipline when we were dealing with very small children. This was it. We would discipline unto the change of a face. We would discipline until our kids changed their countenance. Because a countenance cannot lie. Now, let me illustrate that for you this way. Let's imagine, this never happened in our home, but just imagine that Eli might have popped his sister in the head. Never could have happened. Brothers and sisters don't usually do that kind of stuff. Certainly not in a preacher's house. But let's imagine that that happened. Now, you already know this. Katie, my little baby daughter, she is the apple of my eye. So Eli pops her on the head. That means the thunder of God is about to descend on him. And and that's the way it's going to play. So Eli pops her in the head. And I say to him, Eli, you go to your room. We're not going to have any of that. You go to your room until you can come back and apologize. Now, let me say this. If the punishment fit the crime, Tina and I were absolutely never afraid of spanking our children. The Bible teaches, if you spare the rod, you will spoil the child. I know some of you don't believe in that. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, and we practiced it. And if the punishment fit the crime, we weren't afraid to follow through with that. And by the way, if you discipline well when your kids are very small, you will not have to discipline very much when they get bigger 
And that's the way that works. That's exactly why the Bible teaches that. If you spare the rod, you will spoil the child. So you discipline early, and you won't have to discipline much later on. But let's go back to this other one. Eli's been sent to his room because he popped his sister on the head. We told him that he had to stay there until he could come back and say he was sorry. So Eli comes out of his room. His head's kind of hung low, and he's kicking the dirt, and he says, I'm sorry, Katie. Well, at that moment, we would say, you go back to your room until you can come back and apologize right. So Eli would go back to the room. If this ever happened, totally hypothetical. (laughs) Eli would go back to his room and he would think, okay, what's a right apology? And he would come back and he'd say, I'm sorry, Katie, because I hit you and I shouldn't have done that. And we would say, you go back to the room until, and these were our words, until you can change your face. That's how we're going to know that something has really taken place in your heart when you can change your face. Because, folks, your face doesn't lie. You can't lie in your countenance. So until he could come back and really look like he was sorry, his face had changed, the discipline would continue. If you can discipline to the point of changing a face, you know that the discipline has really been effective. Now let me say this, if you are spanking following what the Bible says, it is hard to spank until a face changes. That's kind of counterproductive. But you can spank the child and let them think about what has happened and you can let all of that soak in until the countenance changes because the face doesn't lie. It can't. Countenance can't lie. So learn how to discipline until there's a change in countenance. This is what the Bible says. Follow me to the book of Proverbs. Chapter 15, verse 13. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. You see, the Bible would teach in all kinds of different places that your countenance declares what's happening in your life, and in your heart, and in your soul. So let's go back then to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Here's what's going on. This guy, very wise man, has signed on, willingly agreed to take the job with the king. Here's how we know that. Verse 2. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. He willingly entered this agreement. Just like we would willingly enter an agreement with a boss, an employer. We agreed to take the job. We took an oath. We said, we'll give you a good day's work for a fair day's pay. That's the way it works. Well, this man did the same thing, and then he found out that this wasn't who he thought he was. The boss wasn't. He's not the man that he had originally communicated. He's a wicked guy. i got to figure out what to do about this. In his conversation with Solomon, Solomon offers him four options. The first one is this. He could be disobedient. He could choose to do exactly the opposite of what his boss has told him. But Solomon would warn him to be extremely careful about that. You be careful about being disobedient in this situation. Because unless it is contrary to the word of God, you don't have the right to do that. In fact, the Bible would teach in the book of Romans. The Bible would teach in the book of Ephesians. The Bible would teach in the book of Colossians. That we are to submit to those in positions of authority over us. And unless it is contrary to the word of God and the nature of God and the will of God, we don't have the right to say, nope, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't exist. God says you be submissive to those in positions of authority over you. If you don't like the situation, then you got to figure out what to do about it. And that's exactly what Solomon was saying. You be careful. So he goes into the second thing. He says, you could just disappear. You could leave the whole situation. Now, this is still found in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you want to get out of there, you can get out of there. That is your option. But Solomon says, don't go too early. Don't you leave too early. 
You make sure that you have all the information in place. You make sure that you know everything that you're supposed to know before you just decide to bail out. And that's really good teaching. I've had a lot of people sit in my office that have quit jobs because of partial information or partial thoughts. They never counted the cost. In this situation, Solomon says, you may run from this evil, wicked king and he'll hunt you down and kill you. It may cost you your life. Well, we still have to count the cost of those decisions. It may not cost us our lives to leave the employee of somebody that we don't agree with, but it may cost us our livelihood. It may cost us our security. It may cost us our ability to take care of our family. And we may make huge mistakes in the process. We may choose to leave long before we were supposed to. We may choose to leave even based on false information. So Solomon cautions this man in the employee of the king to be careful. Don't you bail out of here. Even though it looks evil and even though it looks unjust, you make sure that you don't just impetuously make a decision. Happens all the time. When we see a lack of justice, when we see a lack of equality, we can get into a place where we say, well, this just isn't fair, and we can go to stomping around and want to get out of there. Here's one way that that happens. You sign on to work for somebody, and you find out that they make a lot of money, but they're not paying you a lot of money. Doesn't matter. You agreed to take the job for a certain wage. They own the business. So if they own the business and they're making a hundred times more than you are, good for them. They own the business. You agreed to work for them. But then we have people that will get upset and say, well, this just isn't fair. They need to be doing this. They need to be doing that. They don't have all the information. Sometimes the information they're missing is what happened in the early years of that business. Sometimes what is missing are the struggles that it took to get to the place that they're at today. So Solomon puts these warnings in there. Then he says, here's your third option. You could become defiant. You really could. Now, this actually kicks in when you recognize that somebody is doing something contrary to the Word of God. If it is against God's Word, if it is against the Bible, then there is actually biblical teaching that says we have to rise up against it and make sure that we don't passively give our amen to it. Go with me to the book of Acts. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Speaking of this type of authority and the injustice that's attached to it, particularly within the realm of government issues, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. So when we come across something that is directly contrary to the Word of God, the nature of God, the will of God, everything that we know about God, it becomes our responsibility to rise up against it. I'm not just going to accept this because that person's in a position of authority over me. I'm going to deal with it. We have to do that, but we have to make sure that we do it the right way. We have to make sure that we have all the information in place. We have to make sure that it isn't just our perception that's getting us in trouble. It is truth. And that's a lot of what Solomon is teaching. In the realm of injustice, we've got to get to the bottom of it, and we've got to figure out truth. And we'll think to ourselves, well, if I don't do something about it, this guy's just going to get away with it. They're just going to get away with everything that they're doing, and that's not right. Well, then, you need to hear this from the book of Numbers. You really do. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Nobody hides anything from God. Nobody. Nobody is able to cover things up in such a way that God can never see them. That's impossible. In fact, we would learn this from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. 
a man reaps what he sows. That's just the way it works. So if we begin to experience injustice that's contrary to the Word of God, we can rise up against it. However, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, this is what Solomon wants us to hear. You make sure that you're doing it with great wisdom, and you're not just getting sucked into somebody else's schemes. You make sure, and in the original Hebrew, that's exactly what it teaches. Make sure that you're not just getting sucked into somebody else's plan to overthrow the person in a position of authority. You rise up only with the Word of God on your side. This is contrary to Scripture. And in the realms of injustice, that's exactly what we should do. So Solomon gives us these three ideas. You could disobey. It's not what the Bible teaches. You could flee, almost at great cost, or oftentimes at great cost. And you can become defiant. And the defiance has to be tied to the things that God says versus what man says. And then he would boil it down to this. This is the fourth thing that he would teach. You do all of it with great wisdom. If you come face to face with injustices, you need wisdom to face them. You might say, well, how do I get that? I want great wisdom. How do I get that? The book of James would teach it this way. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And the wisdom that God gives is defined this way in chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. That's the type of wisdom that we're asking of God. First of all, it must be pure. What's my motive? And it must be peace-loving. Am I just trying to cause problems for somebody else, or is this really what it is supposed to be? We begin to apply all those different types of wisdom to the situations of injustice, and more often than not, it changes how we see everything. So really what Solomon is doing is he's saying, slow down. You take a, a look at the whole picture of this. You make sure that you have all your facts in line. You make sure that you're not just getting sucked into somebody else's ideas. You make sure that you're operating according to God's Word and God's Spirit. And then you choose to act. Whether that is to sever the relationship or whether that is to defiantly stand up against it so that you're not agreeing to something passively or aggressively. Disobeying, never a good option. You've got to figure something else out. But it all requires wisdom. Now Solomon could have stopped right there. But he didn't. He took the idea of injustice deeper, and this gets really personal. He could sum up what he's about to say simply by just letting verse 14 stand on its own, but he doesn't. Listen to verse 14. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Now he boils that down in the preceding verses into at least two different categories. Follow what Solomon says. Verse 9. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen 
like a shadow. Two things. Now, let's see if anybody's ever experienced this. You ever attended a funeral of somebody that you knew just was not a good person, and you listened to person after person after person stand up and tell stories about how wonderful they were? Ever happened to you? Well, that's exactly what Solomon's talking about. A wicked man is getting what the righteous deserve. He's getting an elaborate funeral where he is truly honored. And it really does. It happens all the time where people get remembered completely different than the way they lived. In death, they are remembered different than they were in life. It happens all the time. They're getting what the righteous deserve while the righteous are getting left in the dust and nobody ever remembers them. That's a grave injustice when you look and say, this person has lived their entire life in a moral, good, godly way, serving other people, and nobody even remembers them. Nobody even cares about what they have done. But look at this person that did nothing but serve themselves all the years of their lives, and now everybody flocks to a funeral to remember them better than they ever were. It isn't right. It's unjust. And that's exactly what Solomon is teaching against. It's unjust. Hurts a lot of people and they say, well, if God's going to be that way, I just don't understand it. You know how you deal with that? With the long view of God. Meaning, God's scales will always come out in favor of righteousness. Always. But you have to trust it to God. Let me take you to Luke chapter 16. Turn there with me. Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes 8. But go with me to Luke chapter 16. Starting in verse 19, Luke writes, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. You see what the long view of God does? That rich man got everything he was ever going to get right here in this life. But when his life was over, he was in torment. And Lazarus, the one who had to beg at the city gates, the one who had to hope for scraps to fall from the table, received great reward from God. That's the long view of God. Even in the face of injustice, it is right and appropriate for us to say, Lord, you take care of it. This is beyond me. I will commit this to you and I will forget it. It's yours, God. Balance the scales when you deem appropriate and how you deem appropriate. That's what Solomon's teaching. And it'd be nice if he stopped there, but he didn't. Did you hear where he took us next in Ecclesiastes chapter 8? He took us into the courtroom. Have you watched the news or maybe even sat in a courtroom yourself and seen somebody that you knew 
was guilty beyond the shadow of any doubt, walked out of the courtroom declared innocent. Or they left on a technicality and the victims were left to pick up the pieces of their lives. It happens all the time. Great trial lawyer F. Lee Bailey would say this, in America, an acquittal does not mean that you're innocent. It means that you beat the rap. He's a defense attorney. And that's exactly how he would sum it up. Robert Frost would go on to say this about the American judicial system, that in the United States of America, a jury is nothing more than 12 people that are assembled to determine who has the best attorney. Really, it it plays out that way, and there's a lot of injustice that happens as a result of it. And Solomon teaches about it back in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. A wicked man is set free, and everybody else has to just pick up the pieces. That's a tough place to be. I got this joke this past week. I thought it was good timing. Lawyer was cross-examining a witness. Isn't it true, he bellowed, that you were given $500 to throw this case? The witness did not answer. Instead, he just stared out the window as though he hadn't heard the question. The attorney repeated himself, again getting the same reaction. No response. Finally, the judge spoke to the witness. Please answer the question. Oh, said the startled witness, I thought he was talking to you. (laughs) Sometimes that happens. And there's great injustice that comes about as a result of it. And Solomon says, we have to figure out how to deal with it. It's painful. It's hard. It's evil in the world. And it causes people to walk away from God rather than understanding the long view of God that says, He will deal with it. For 25 years now, as I've been in ministry, Tina and I entered ministry 25 years ago, I have had many opportunities to go visit people in jail. By the way, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to go visit people in prison. So we do. It says you feed the hungry, you give the thirsty a drink of water, you go visit people in jail. So we do. I get a phone call. Deanie gets phone calls. Matt gets phone calls on a regular basis to come visit with somebody in jail. Initially, when I started doing that, and it lasted for years, I would listen to people as they told me their whole story the way they wanted to tell me their story, and it almost always ended in the same place. But my lawyer says, I'm going to be able to get off on this, or I'll be able to get off by this, and my lawyer's going to get me out of this, or my family's going to get me out of this, all kinds of different ways that they were trying to beat the system. And, and I didn't know. I was young, didn't have much knowledge or wisdom in those days. I just listened to it, and I thought, well, gosh, how can I help you? And then finally it hit me that I needed to change my whole tack when I go to visit people in jail, and I have. Now, the moment I sit down with them, whether it's through the glass via a phone or whether we're sitting and talking face-to-face, I ask this question. It's always my first question. Why are you here? And they tell their story, and then I follow it up with the second question. Are you guilty? And they'll look at me and kind of scratch around on the ground a little bit. Usually they'll say, well, my lawyer told me that I'm supposed to plead not guilty. And I don't let it end there. I go back to the same question. Are you guilty? Did you do it? And if they say yes, and it happens, I'll say, then why don't you stand up and tell the judge that? Why don't you stop this whole process of saying, I'm not guilty, and trying to beat the rap, and just admit what you've done. Stand up and say you're guilty. There's times that they look at me like I'm a two-headed monster. There are other times that they really think hard and long about it. And I'll tell them it's the pattern that's set forward in the Bible. Listen to this in 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word has no place in our lives. It's pretty pointed. That's how we're supposed to approach God. 
We're not supposed to come before God and say, God, I'm not guilty of any sin and hope that we're going to find a loophole to get us out of it. We're supposed to boldly stand up before God and confess our sins. Why wouldn't we follow the same pattern here? If you're guilty, admit that you're guilty. Stand up and face what you've done. I don't even know anymore how many people that I have sat with and had that conversation with and then watched as they went to the judge and said, Judge, I need to change my plea to guilty. The judge is, more often than not, kind of taken back by that as well. And they'll even say, do you understand the ramifications of that? Yes, Your Honor, I do. And I have watched time and time again as judges, worldly judges, have extended godly mercy and grace. And people have found wonderful lives in Christ because of following that same pattern. And it deals with the injustice of always trying to get away with something. Solomon says it doesn't always play out that way. So we have to get to a place where we can deal with it when it doesn't. I want you to listen to what he says as we wrap this up. Verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night... Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. So here's what Solomon teaches, and this is good stuff. You may never get to a place where you understand evil on the earth. So eat and drink and be happy. Live your life. He talks about all these people that he's visited with that can't even sleep because of the injustice. It overwhelms them. It occupies every moment of every day. This isn't right. This is unjust. They can't make their way on through life. And so Solomon says, you give that to God. You do your life. You eat. You sleep. And you find happiness. You find joy. Why wouldn't we rather choose joy in saying God's got it covered than choosing restlessness and unhappiness in trying to figure out another way around it? And that's what Solomon's teaching on here. This is what I discovered this past week about this. We could try and try and try to think our way through evil in the world and never arrive at any conclusion. Go with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 29. Verse 29. I'm going to give you just a minute to turn there because I want you to see this for yourself. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Moses writes, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. There are some things that will remain a mystery, some things that will remain a secret. They belong to God. Leave them there. If God reveals something to you, you act upon it. If it remains a secret, a mystery, you leave it with God. Because here's a truth for you that you have to know. God is the creator of both the seen and the unseen. And he is the only one that can see both. God is the creator of the seen and the unseen, and he's the only one that can see both. Now let me illustrate this for you. In 2 Kings chapter 6, interesting thing is happening. The king of Aram is at war with the king of Israel. King of Aram will make all of his strategies and, and then the king of Israel will come in and upend all of the king of Aram's strategies. The reason that works is because Elisha was God's man. Elisha would go to the king of Israel and he would tell him what the king of Aram was doing. 
The king of Aram got really, really upset about it. Really upset about it. And he called all of his majors, generals, and colonels together. And he said, what's going on here? And they said, Elisha, he knows what you're going to do before you do it. And he goes and tells the king of Israel. So the king of Aram said, then you find him and you kill him. You hunt him down. The entire army of Aram marched against Elisha. Elisha was alone with his servant out in the wilderness. One morning, the servant got up, went out maybe to tend the fire, get the coffee going, get everything ready to go for Elisha for the day. Prophet of God needs a good cup of coffee, I guess. So he went out there, got it all going. He looked up into the hills, and the king of Aram and all of his army was descending upon him. And Elisha's servant did this. He yelled, Oh, my Lord! Now, ostensibly, he might have been talking to Elisha because that was terminology they used. He may have very well been crying out to God, too. Oh, my Lord! Look what's happening. Elisha walks out, looks up into the hills, sees king of Aram descending upon them, pours himself a cup of coffee, and in Phil's paraphrase said, "Ah, it's nothing to worry about. And his servant said, what are you talking about? Again, Phil's paraphrase, what are you talking about? Nothing to worry about. And Elisha said, those that are with us are more than those that are against us. And then he prayed for his servant. This was his prayer. Lord, open his eyes that he might see that those that are with us are more than those that are against us. And instantly the servant looked into the hills and he saw horses and chariots of fire and the angels that were attending all of it. And they were more than those that were descending upon them. God is the only one that can see both the seen and the unseen. And if we want to find great peace, then that has to become our prayer. Lord, if I cannot see it, allow me to accept that those that are with me are more than those that are against me. And when the time is right, these scales will fix themselves and everything will be okay in the long view of God. And it is. And until then, I will do life. I will eat, I will drink, and I will find joy. And everything will be okay. Because I trust God. Near the end of the 19th century, a mathematician slash philosopher wrote an interesting essay called The Ethics of Belief. In it, he put forward this idea that no person at any time, anywhere, should accept anything without substantial proof. Never. If you cannot rationalize and think your way through it, don't believe it. Right after the turn of the century, a fellow named Thomas Huckley read The Ethics of Belief. He read another philosopher at the time that was teaching this kind of an idea. I think, therefore I am. He took those two ideas and he put them together to arrive at his own conclusions. If I cannot think my way through something, then I will never agree with it. That destroys faith. If I can't understand it, if I can't rationalize it, I will do nothing with it. I will refuse to commit. As a result of that, he coined a new expression, agnostic, which basically means refuse to commit to anything. If you cannot intellectually, rationally arrive at a conclusion, then you stay away from it. Because I think... Therefore, I am. There's an old Cartesian joke that goes along with that. This is a thinker. Stay with me. Fellow goes into a bar. Do you want a beer? The bartender asked. The man said, I think not. And he disappeared. <laughs> That's funny. First service, I, I mean, people were laughing all the way out. I don't want to say anything about second service. I'm just, That's funny. <laughs> so the idea of agnosticism came on the scene. Do you realize that it's only a little over 100 years old? Prior to that time, people accepted things by faith. Atheism really 
started to gain some momentum in the 1940s. It's only 70 years old. Agnosticism is just over 100 years old. Before that, people just accepted. And then all of a sudden, these different philosophies came on the scene and people started to really think that if I can't think my way to a rational end in the realm of God or in the realm of evil on this earth, then that's fine. At the end of this life, I will just cease to exist. You want to know the problem with that? You do not just cease to exist. You don't. The Bible would teach in the book of Philippians and also in the book of Revelation that the time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's just that the destination will not be the same for everyone. Not at all. For those that have arrived at a place in life, this life, where they can trust God with everything, including the deep secrets, then when the time comes, they will hear the Lord say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and enter your rest. For those that have rejected everything, they will find themselves cast into the pits of hell. I don't know that this is good theology at all. It just makes sense in my mind, so please don't hang on it like it is really biblical, good theological teaching. God is the creator of the universe. This we know from the Bible. He did it in six days, and he spoke it into existence. On the seventh day, God rested. Now that is good biblical teaching. Here's where I don't know if it really is or not, but again, it makes sense in my mind. That took six days. It happened 6,000 years ago. For the last 6,000 years, God has been creating heaven. For the last 2,000 years, Jesus has declared that he's gone to prepare a place for all of us, and and that's what he's doing, and when the time is right, he'll come back for us. But for those 6,000 years, as God has been creating heaven and building heaven, he's also been building hell. Six days to create the world that we live in, 6,000 years, 6,000 years to create a place of punishment. Can you imagine? The rich man would cry out to God, let Lazarus go and just dip the tip of his finger into the water and cool my tongue. It is such a heinous place. That's what waits for people that wrestle their way into distance with the Lord. That's where they're headed. And nobody should want to choose that. Nobody. Jesus Christ and the peace that he offers is the way out of it. Our choice is is what keeps us from getting there. And the long view of God will keep us safe in it. Until that time, we follow Solomon's pattern. We eat, we drink, we be happy. We find joy. And we trust that God's got it worked out. Isn't that an easier answer than I've got to figure all this out? The wisest man to ever live arrived at that conclusion. This is a secret. So I'm going to eat, drink, and be happy. That's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to let God have the rest. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, there really is great peace when we get to a place where we can understand these things. Great peace. And it happens through your Son. For that, I'm very grateful. I pray that you'll get us there. Lord, I specifically pray that this morning for people who have been wrestling with injustice and inequality, touching their lives very personally. I'm praying, Lord, that in the absence of understanding, you'll give them freedom from it. They might be able to sleep at night, no longer worried about it, knowing and trusting that you've got it. You're taking care of it. We don't have to. Lord, that lifts a burden off of us, huge burden.
Now, I fully understand that sometimes those scales will not fix themselves this side of eternity. But I trust with great faith that they always will. Lord, our sin finds us out. We know that from the Bible. We know that there are deep secrets. Help us to allow you to carry them and not get ourselves into trouble in trying to discover them. Thank you for Solomon's writing. Lord, let it penetrate our hearts. Pray now for those that are wrestling with this very issue. Help them lay it down before you. In Jesus' name, amen.